Welcome to Message Received. In this longer episode, Tim chats to Deborah Abbott, founder and CEO of Leading Dragons. Deborah is passionate about enabling leaders and their teams to be better in order to do better. Deborah shares insights and provides listeners with practical tips in this great discussion. Hello and welcome to Message Received. I'm Tim Ferguson, your host today for this episode, and I'm really excited to be in conversation with Deborah Abbott. Hello, Deborah. Hello, Tim. How are you? Thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much for joining. To set the table, what I'd like to do is introduce you. We're going to get into leading dragons and we're going to get into your work, which hinges on three important words, purpose, growth, and action, from what I can see. But I'd like to introduce our listeners to you and make sure that they can locate you on the map. So who's Deborah Abbott and what do we need to know about you to understand the work you're doing today? I'm sitting in Switzerland in between Geneva and Lausanne. I've been in Switzerland for the last few years. Originally, I'm born and bred in in London, England. I've actually done my schooling in three separate countries. So uh, from the UK, we, we left when I was 11, moved to Germany for three years, where I continued my schooling and learned the language, and then moved to France, where I finished off and I didn't do my A-levels, I did my baccalaureate. So I've always had this attraction to, uh, to traveling and this curiosity to discovering new places and meeting new people. I'm curious about language. I'm remarkably unilingual. I'm a Canadian. I also live in Switzerland, but English is my one and only language. And I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit, the experience of learning and speaking other languages. And what does that passport give you almost to the insight to other cultures? It's very curious about that. First of all, at a very young age, I learned to, well, we were thrown outside our comfort zone repeatedly. So new country, new language. We didn't understand anything when we arrived um, in Germany and then in France. And we had to settle into a new system and find our way through it. The discomfort is something that I'm very familiar with. Language is not just words. It's also a reflection and an understanding of differences and how people from uh, speaking that language appreciate different things and and go about their daily lives slightly differently and see things from different perspectives. So that really brought me to open my mind at an early age and to understand that there was not one way or the highway. And so it has been a passport to working when I was still working in in my corporate life, working at CERN, so the European Centre of Nuclear Research here in Geneva, and also other international organisations, OECD, where I worked as well. The first 10 years of my career were based on project management and contract management. And that work, what was satisfying about what that work? What was interesting about that work? Oh, that work is, is bringing people together, negotiating and building, building new projects. When I was working at CERN, just working with the theory physicists and the um, practice or practical physicists and then the engineers. So from concept to actually design and construction, especially in the place of astrophysics. So eye-opening, there's so much to discover and you have profiles from all walks of life that get together at the table and it's just fascinating. It's my love for people and my love for diversity and and the complexity um, that we see every day with human dynamics. 
And maybe say a few words about CERN, because I think it's, it's uh, you say it kind of casually, oh, I was working at CERN. But for those who don't understand what CERN is and what CERN does, we'll come later, we're going to be talking about facilitation, working with people. And I actually often use the CERN particle accelerator as a metaphor or an analogy for the relationship between structure and inspiration or innovation. It's like planned accidents. Like a good brainstorming workshop is highly planned, but the idea that's going to come is not quite predictable. We need to be able to predict that an unpredictable idea will emerge. Am, am I getting it right, what, what CERN is about? I, 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 I'm just smiling and I love, I love what you're saying, Tim, because when I arrived, I was um, hired, amongst some others, as a senior buyers for the construction of the new particle accelerator. So they were dismantling the LEP and they were going to build the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider. And the idea, at least back then, was you have mathematicians, okay, you have astrophysicists who uh, spend their days and their nights and weeks, and if not months, living in their offices, typically wearing shorts, um, tennis socks and sandals and writing with a chalk on the blackboard and writing these mathematical formulas. And putting it into practice was installing the, the particle accelerator and creating these experiments to see whether it was correct. I see. It was there to, it's a way of experimenting to confirm, are the theories written on the chalkboard correct or not correct? Because it's all very good and well to have it on pen and paper, but then in reality, in real life, is it really, does it, is it going to work? And when does, when, when is it correct and when is it incorrect? And so if we were to copy paste that concept into organizations and go, okay, so, well, this is our structure. This is our governance structure, for instance. Now, let's see, I don't know, we, we're starting with a new project uh, within a given team. Will this structure work? And that's a fantastic question to bring to the table because it's getting people who are within that team, within that project team, to think about that, the given structure that they're working in and self-organizing to be smarter and swifter in the way they work together. So talk about cross-cultural translation. Your job was to bridge the gap between the mathematician, the astrophysicist, and the, what, engineer? Who were you managing? I was helping the engineers to translate into concrete calls for tender what the physicists were wanting to achieve. So I had to understand, and sometimes, the, yeah, the language, again, was different. When we talk about culture and cross-cultures, it's not only language. I think it's Philip Rosinski. He's got a book called Coaching Across Cultures, and he talks about 11 elements that, uh, when brought together, bring the definition of culture. So translating and facilitating, already enabling the engineers to become super concrete and crystal clear about what it is that they needed and how we were gonna plan the installation, you know, the delivery and the installation of all the different parts to be brought together to build the LHC. It's completely fascinating. Did you get into this because of your love of maths and astrophysics and engineering? How did you end up in this? I was working um, in London at the time and I'm into project management. So I'm not a physicist at all. I'm not a mathematics person at all. I did economics and statistics at university back in the day. It was really about purchasing procurement. My love is about enabling people to articulate what it is that they need. 
Why? What is it about that moment where you see the impact where the, the person on the receiving end goes from not understanding to understanding, like, where is the, we'll, we'll do our own CERN experiment here and try to isolate and say, okay, well, where's the moment, where's the moment of satisfaction? Why does that feel as good as it obviously does? Because we are treading into new unknown territory we're exploring. So we're having explorative conversations. Not that I understood half of the terminology that the physicists were, were using, but that doesn't matter, does it, when you're a facilitator? It's all about the process. And, and just transforming the conversations so that the different parties can make an effort in, being, in simplifying their message so that the other one could appreciate it and take it on. And then transforming that conversation, which then transforms, as we know, uh, relationships and projects. It's a great description. I think of uh, a description of facilitating, of being a communicator, of leadership, really. Helping different people with a shared mission understand each other well enough to be able to get on with it and make things happen. It's about the skill and the art of listening. How much free attention are we able to give to somebody else to listen to them on a global level? What you have to say is as important as what I have to say. And I care about what you have to say. And just giving that space and holding that space for the person to articulate what they truly need to say. I mean, how often have we left meetings thinking, oh, I didn't even say, I couldn't say this, or I didn't say that, or I forgot to say this, or I didn't have the time to say that. I'd like to see myself as a, an accelerator as well, holding that space and enabling every person in the room or at the table to express themselves and to stand in their power and say what they truly need to say, which is only going to add value to the collective. And there's an irony there or a paradox, perhaps, that it's only by slowing down and taking the time to listen that we can accelerate. Like you put two things together that I think most people would say is, well, those are contradictions, aren't they? On the one hand, I'm saying we need to carve out more space to be silent and listen and ponder and think. But on the other, my job is that I'm an accelerator. And, and it may be like, well, the, aren't those opposites? It's like, no, I, I don't think they are opposites. What, what do you say about that? One of my mottos is slow down to speed up. When you slow right down and, and give yourself and allow yourself and the others to, to take that time out away from the ticking the boxes, the everyday distractions. That's where the magic happens. That's where sparks are ignited and creativity can happen. I want to switch now into more into the here and now. And when people Google Deborah Abbott Leading Dragons, they come to your beautiful website, Leading Dragons. It's mm -hmm. such an intriguing name, conjures many images in my mind. I would love to know what you mean by it and why did you choose to, to call what you're doing Leading Dragons? I founded Leading Dragons in early 2020. And that was on the back of two years of Taoist guidance and Taoist teachings. In Taoism, the dragon is the symbol of the spirit. It seems, Tim, you know, today that we've forgotten that we're body, mind and spirit. So let's look at the body. Most boxes are ticked. Okay, so we've got uh, so much out there around people running at lunchtimes, eating healthily, mindfulness. Well, mindfulness actually also goes onto the, the, the spirit. But then we have the mind. The mind is the intellectual part of us. That too stimuli uh, uh, intellectual environments, intellectual conversations, data-driven decisions. All that is, is the mind. 
well, what about the spirit? And I, I can only speak from experience. I myself was disconnected from, from spirit for a great majority of pretty much this lifetime. And yet it's, it's in the space of the spirit that we can tap into our intuitive sense. And it's the place where innovation happens, where breakthrough thinking happens, where perspectives shift and new ways of, of looking at old problems my first thing to you, Tim, is that to remind ourselves that we're not heads on sticks, that we're human beings. We're not human beings with a spirit. We're spirits in a human being suit, meat suit, if you like. How can we go about bringing the spirit into organizations as well, especially today where there are a lot of systems and structures that are becoming more and more obsolete um, and a lot of companies are asking the right questions. How can we retain? How can we keep our, about the best of our people from leaving? That's a big question, and it's, it's got a lot of complex um, factors around it. But that will need, in order to address that issue, you know, what is it that what are the what are the questions that companies need to be asking inside uh, themselves? What is it? And the, the, the questions will depend on how open they are. And so how can they move away from, you know, step out of their comfort zone, step out of their comfort thinking and really ask the right questions? So for someone who does step outside the comfort zone, maybe step into the spirit zone a little more, and they do give themselves that moment for self-inquiry, what kind of questions am I likely to be asking myself if I'm, if I'm more about my spirit than, than otherwise? Well, to start from the beginning, we say that organizations don't change, people do. And also change is an inside job. So we, just like you say, Tim, we have to start with ourself, building that self-awareness. So what is your energy frequency right now? Are you working from a space of fear of perhaps fear of judgment or fear of rejection. Perhaps you're irritated. Perhaps you feel insecure in your job. Perhaps you doubt. You're doubting yourself or you're doubting others. Lack of trust or mistrust with your colleagues also keeps us from stepping into that place of higher vibrational frequency, which is courage. So uh, do I feel more contracted? And we can feel that in our own selves, right? So how can we check and what is it we all have fears, doubts, and, and worries, and it's not sort of, oh, you've reached a higher frequency and that's you for the rest of the day, the week, or the month. No, it's like continuous checking in with ourselves and starting from there, already being aware of the way that you are in yourself. If you're feeling contracted, then have that conversation. Why am I worried about X? Why do I fear Y? And how can I work through that? I think what you're saying about uh, energy and how am I showing up is so relevant to the Teams, Zoom, Google, the uh, the virtual world where so joining all of these different organizations and teams that we work with as our clients, you get on one call and it's like one set of energy and then you're like, my goodness, what's going on here? And then you, you leave and you go on to another call and it's a completely different feeling. And some of them 
in my mind, it's like a high wire act. Like it's a highly charged call where every person seems stressed out. It's like they're being scrutinized for what they're about to say. And then maybe the leader on the call asks, you know, like a provocative question or, or even just a question like, so what do you think of this idea? And you can see in everybody's face calculation. How do I answer this question versus another call where uh, people are joking, it's free-flowing conversation, uh, the leader is relaxed, the leader is maybe doing very little talking, just doing a lot of listening. They're dealing with the real issues, but they're dealing with it in a light-hearted manner. You know, you might see this from one, literally one call to the next. Is this the kind of practical outcome for, for people who are listening to this saying, well, if I'm going to work on my spirit, what's the impact going to be? What, what, how am I going to be a better leader or how am I going to be a, be a better contributor? How would you describe the benefits for someone who is a little bit, um, this sounds a little bit like what I would do on Sunday, not what I would do during the week at work. What do you say to all that? Fascinating question. And, it's, and it is complex. And I talked about self-awareness and it's also awareness about um, the environment, the work environment that you are nurturing as a leader? What is it that you're encouraging? What is it that you're discouraging? What behaviors are you tolerating? You brought up two examples, very contrasting examples. And the common denominator here is culture, always organizational culture. So what is the culture within the team? If everyone's having, um, if everyone's quite contracted and they don't dare say what they really want to say, or you can, you'll re- you, you find yourself reading between the lines because they're not really saying what they're trying to say because they don't. It all comes down to, you know, the team, the team spirit. We talk about team spirit. There's nothing new about that. So what is the team spirit? Is it high vibrational? Are we all uh, brainstorming and exploring different options and breaking down limiting beliefs about the system or our our capabilities to collectively as a team? Or are we sitting there, you know, just looking at our neighbors and wondering who's going to talk next and who dares to, to talk? So the leader does have that responsibility to lead and to set the tone. What is the kind of tone? What are the meetings that he or she want to have with the team? What is it that they want? Do they want to just yes people around the table? Okay, fine. Then so be it. Then they're going to have quite a sterile conversation. Whereas if the leader was to say, no, I'd love to, I, I'm not the one, I don't have all the answers. And I, I know that some people in the team are better than I am at whatever skills. Great. And let's lift each other up together. Well, that's it. You're going to have a complete, the set of tone is completely different. And then the conversation and the way of direction that it will go in be very vastly different and i know that we're we're supposed to be very um open-minded about cultural differences and i I hope that i am when i think of corporate culture however i do believe that there's sort of a right kind of culture and a not right kind of culture and that the culture that you describe where it's brainstorming and it's high frequency and people are engaged and they're speaking up and they're not afraid to speak their mind feels like not only is it being true to human nature, but it's also what is going to, in the long run, deliver innovation and value, etc. And that the constrained, uh, no one has the courage to speak, they're, they're in fear of uh, being called out or humiliated for saying anything that the leader doesn't want to hear, etc. Culture of fear is unhealthy, unnatural, not human. And it's not a case of, well, there's two sides, you know, there's two sides to every argument and and both are kind of right. 
I feel like I want to say, well, no, actually, that that second one is not correct. It is incorrect. You are running your organization in the wrong way. Am I being uh, judgmental and biased? Am I simply showing my bias? No, not at all. I think it's a great question. And it's like the macroeconomic environment that we work in. It's volatile. Things are moving all the time. What a team might need in January could be quite different to what they will need in May could be quite different again to what they need in November in terms of leadership style on a collective level and also on an individual level. You do need to slow right down and take that time because that will only take us in that rocket and and go. So taking that time to, to pause and listen to each one individually and collectively, it's also a process because I believe very much in collective accountability. So if you have two in the team, I had a, one of my clients last week was telling me, oh, uh, she's got a team of 14 and she, she works in a, in a pharmaceutical, big, one of the big fives. And she has 14 reports and there were two that were bickering. I said, oh, I've got a meeting uh, this week and I've got to try and, and resolve their differences between them. And I said, why are you doing that? Why, why do you think it's for you to do the fact that the bickering is happening, even though nobody else is saying anything, that's impacting the team anyway. And the fact that they are allowed or tolerated to be to bicker is not a problem only between these two ladies, but it's actually a collective accountability issue with the rest of the team. So this is all the, the unsaid, the unsaid stuff, the thing that stays um, under the, swept under the carpet and then we'll just move on to the next day and the next week and the next month. And then what happens, it, it can snowball, but it does impact way beyond just the two of them. So we're going to be working with her team there have been a, a number of situations where somebody is sort of misbehaving or just just totally not okay how they are articulating the message that, they, that they're wanting to articulate at the table. And the others are just looking at their shoes or they're pretending that they haven't really heard what was said. So that in itself is actually toxic. It goes back to culture each and every time. What are the conversations that we need to be having as a team? Because each and every individual team member is individually and collectively accountable. And that's why I enable high-performing teams, because high-performing teams are the happy teams. They're the teams that work together in flow. And they're doing that consciously, and they've done that because they've gone through that process. If I was to ask you, Tim, what is, what's a high-performing team to you? I think a high-performing team would be, one, they'd be accomplishing a goal that they could not accomplish any other way than as a team. They would have unique roles, diverse roles. They would have a shared set of standards that they're adhering to and holding each other accountable to, and that they're achieving very high results. They don't just feel good about each other. They actually, they win more World Cups than non-high-performing teams. And maybe the last thing would be that they do all this with an esprit de corps that allows them to do it again tomorrow sort of thing, something like that. Yeah, I love that. I love that definition. It energizes them to be working together. I think the important about the accountability and my earlier characterization of the two different teams, which would you rather be on, you've kind of painted a picture much more realistic of, a th- of this third way, which is like sometimes when you see a team having fun, They look serious, right? I'm thinking of the women's Canadian soccer team, football team, and you you watch them playing, man, and it's serious. You see people with such a high level of concentration and focus and 
you know, they're not happy when something goes wrong. They're in the game. There's that that feeling of united by a meaningful purpose, knowing your role, knowing your part, knowing you belong, but also knowing that you can't let the team down, that you have to re-earn your spot. It's not just all like fun brainstorming that there are these moments of, hey, guys, our market share is going down. Us loving each other is not going to turn that around. So how do we, as a team, have the conversations we need to make the decisions that are the right ones so that we can regain and have the results that we're looking for? It's not just a party. Definitely. The word um, synchronicity comes to mind. When a team that's high performing, they know each other. They spend 80% of their energy and time working in flow and only 20% on relationships. Whereas an under or dysfunctional team, they would be spending a lot less time in workflow and a lot more energy in figuring out how to overcome or resolve this conflict or trying to understand where they fit, what their role is, how to work together. So there's all that kind of education piece to get to before the team then really truly works in flow and in synchronicity. So no, it's not just fun and games, but it is fun and it's hard work. And it's that commitment um, as a team member to bring your best self to the team. I love the way you hold these almost paradoxes together. And one I'd like to explore a little bit more deeply, or not not deeply, maybe more concretely or or tip-oriented. You have a, a phrase that goes along the lines of, we are not human doings, we are human beings, which I intuitively, I, I understand that I'm fully on board. Where my mind goes, and, and we're, we're touching on it here with this relationship between our team spirit and our outcomes, I'm all about us being better human beings, but I know that what we get measured on is our doings. How do you reconcile those two, or, or how do you see the relationship between those two? It's an art. It's a balancing act between being a human being and being a human doing. And actually, it was a few years ago, a Qigong teacher said to me, you know, Deborah, we're not human doings, we're human beings. And I thought that was a really beautiful way to sort of pull everything together and go, that's exactly it. So there's not one without the other. So what does a human doing do? A human doing is much more the the heads on sticks, right? I was mentioning earlier, which is, well, we need to get stuff done. We need to tick boxes. We need to move. So moving into action is one of my three pillars of leading dragons because it's all very good and well to talk till the cows come home. But if you don't act upon what was decided in the meeting, then what difference is it going to make? It's about making things happen. And, and I like to say that energy is the ability to change. So it's really moving into that interaction. So that's the human doing piece. I'm going to say, however, however, it depends where we are as human beings. So, Tim, if I was to ask you, uh, think of the last time when you were perhaps anxious or worried about something. So you, you're your frequency is contracted. The thoughts that are going through your mind are contracted as well. They're not expanded. They're not full of opportunity. And you perhaps feel less empowered when you are in that lower vibrational space. And so that's really important because when we make decisions from a contracted energetic space, the decisions look very different than when we are operating from a space of courage, of inspiration, of empowerment, of acceptance. 
So we do also need to sit with ourselves. We need to allow to reconnect with our inner selves, our intuition, to realign with our purpose and who we are. And also in order to, to innovate, because that's where, where we can break through, you know, the old thinking patterns and the old doing patterns. It's not, by, it's not when you're doing. When you're doing, you're doing stuff. You're too busy. You're too distracted to be. To be. It's basically carving out that time to, to sit with ourselves and, and build our, our own self-awareness. So if I'm taking more care of my human being and my human being is in a good place, so if I'm in a place of generosity and patience and courage and truthfulness, then my human doings, which are going to come, I've, I've got to get stuff done. It'll be of higher quality. I'll make better choices. Like as you were asking me to reflect, I can reflect on one from like two hours ago and then one from a couple of days ago where I, it was more my choice of words, that if I could go back and redo my choice of words, I would. And it was from exactly what you've described, this almost uh, anxious, I, I love your, your contracted expression, and this is a podcast so no one can see us, but the way you physically, you, you model what that feels like, we're, we're contracted, and that's exactly what I was in those moments. So the doing, I was undone by my human being being in the wrong spot. If I had taken more care of my human being, my human doing would have naturally been better. Is that, have I got the formula right? Yeah, decision-making is vastly different when we are thinking and feeling from that place, that contracted space. We all have those moments, right, throughout the day of, of anxiety or doubt or fear or some kind of fear. That's absolutely fine. And that's where we need to pause. You talk a lot about quality of decisions. So what, what's the difference between decisions I'm making when I'm focused more on being versus decisions that I make when I'm focused more on doing? Good, you know, informed decisions, I believe, are those that are, have been reflected upon, especially in, in the workplace. We need to not only decide quickly and swiftly, but also often make decisions in an uncertain landscape. And working with ambiguity does typically frighten us. We don't really like ambiguity. We don't like uncertain outcomes. And yet this is the place that we need to all move to and spend more time in. I was describing to a client uh, the other day, we, we were talking about their situation. And the analogy that we landed on was, it's like they as an organization are a ship in the ocean, and each member of the team is a crew on that ship. And the ocean is in a unbelievable storm they can't stop the storm like no amount of meditation no amount of yoga in the morning or going for a run none of that is going to change the fact of the of the ocean but it is going to make you much more able as a team to navigate your, that ship and to feel uh, maybe excited or exhilarated by the experience versus completely terrified again i guess another another thing about balance not it's not it's not like we can make the world perfect by being better human beings but we can make our navigation through the world much more helpful to ourselves and others if we do yeah so and this this goes back to okay so if i can't change the outside world what can i change what is my circle of influence and what can i do from that inside piece to like you say better navigate the storm there are storms. And in fact, going back to the leading dragon, the leading dragon steps aside of the chaos, stepping aside of that chaos and going, okay, what is it that I can do in my power? How can I step into my power 
realign with myself and enable other people to do the same. It's about me. I'm a dragon. I'm I'm a leading dragon, but also no, I'm a leader of dragons. I help to tame them, I guess, somehow and and get the best from their magical, wonderful powers and not have them go off and destroy the village. Is it something like that? Exactly. And it goes back, uh, you know, we we said we mentioned this a few times, which is accountability. We are all equally accountable. When we leave that room, when we leave that table, the decisions that we've taken is a collective or our collective decisions. As we move out of away from the table and back to the workspace where we're going to be or human doings, what are we going to be doing to ensure that that accountability, I mean, this is thing, it comes back to culture, organizational, team culture. What is it that we've agreed collectively and how far does our accountability go? Say, for example, you and I are a, a part of a team and Tim, you're, you've got an overload, you've got a, some, some work overload or there's something that's gone wrong, something that's happened or some, something that just... Uh, a force majeure has happened. I could either say, oh, well, Tim, that's your problem. I, don't, I, I, can't, I really can't help you with that. Or I can say, look, Tim, I'm here as part of the team. I'm with you. Let's figure out a way to solve this together. Or perhaps maybe I could reach out to somebody else who, who's better than, than myself to help you and accompany you through that. It's like rowing. I started sculling on the lake in April last year. And it's so much about synchronicity. And whilst you are a valuable member on the boat, a sculler, just like your valuable team member, your needs are as important as the collective needs. There's not one in front of the other. So it's basically it's navigating between the two and keeping a check on, on both of them because you don't want to have a weak member either. Just the other day, I was on the, on the lake and the lady who was in front of me on the boat, we rowed, uh, we did probably 8K one way. And then I could see that one of her hands were bleeding a little bit there where she holds the oar. And when we paused, I said, Jennifer, if you want, I'll, I'll give you my gloves. I was using cycling gloves. It's not the best thing to, to because you can't feel the oar as well. And I said, look, here are my gloves. You know, you, and she goes, oh, no, no, it's fine. I said, no, sure, please. You know, your skin is broken and we need to row back. And she was surprised of the fact that I offered her my gloves. And I was surprised that she was surprised. So it's, it's about looking after each other as well as looking, looking after ourselves. So it's that balance. Well, I think that's a, a great place to, to close the conversation that we, if we want to move forward and win that race, we need to look after each other. And to look after each other, we need to speak up and share what might sound obvious to us, but may not be obvious to, to someone else. If my hand is bleeding, I might not ask for your gloves, that's for sure. I might even also say, I'll refuse the offer. I can almost say with certainty, I would not have the courage to say, hey, my hand's bleeding here, Deborah. Can, can I borrow your gloves? So I, I, I love this story to leave in people's minds. So it goes back to the collective, and I believe it's collectively that we can move forward and transform conversations and workplaces. So Deborah, our podcast is called Message Received. So as a parting message that that you hope will stay in the minds of our listeners, what, what comes to mind? What would you like to leave them with? I would say be kind. Be kind to yourself and others one day at a time. That is a great message. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And it's been a real pleasure getting to know you and uh, looking forward to our next conversation. Tim, thank you very much. The pleasure was mutual. Thank you for listening to Message Received. We hope you enjoyed this series. 
please follow us to find out what comes up next in the next series.